Well, hey everyone! Welcome to episode 127 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This was, this week's episode features one of my absolute favorite photographers and photography personalities, Ian Plant. Ian travels the globe seeking out amazing places and subjects in his never-ending quest to capture the beauty of our world with his camera. Ian seeks out the hidden spaces in between the familiar, relying on long exposures, unique lighting conditions, non-traditional perspectives, and special natural events to show his subjects in a new light. He is also the co-founder of Shutter Monkeys, a site dedicated to photography education and inspiration. Ian and I covered a lot of really fun ground this week, including his journey as a landscape photographer. He answers the question, why do you take photographs? We talk about his new company, Shutter Monkeys. We talk about his take on the creative process. We talk about how you can visually and emotionally connect your viewers to your artwork. We talk about Ian's idea of visual flow and his ebook, his thoughts on composition and learning how to do it better, and Ian's ultimate landscape course, and of course, a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Ian answers listener questions on his favorite locations, his trip to Argentina to photograph the solar eclipse, and his thoughts on video as an education tool. Stay tuned through the show to learn about upcoming guests and other things I'm super excited to share with the listeners. Okay, let's get to the show. Ian Plant, thank you so much for joining us on F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Awesome, man. I've, uh, I'm not going to lie. I've been a huge fan of your work ever since I got into photography, which was about in 2010. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, man. I think I even maybe bumped into you um, the very first time I ever shot at Owl Creek Pass near Ridgeway. I think you might have been leading a workshop there. It was like 20, 2013, it was like two in the afternoon, three in the afternoon on that overlook. Um, and I think you had like a satellite phone and you were talking to somebody about weather or something. I think it was you, man. Yeah, you know, it might have been me. Um, though, if you had actually met me in person, you would no longer be a fan of me because the thing I hear from people who uh, meet me uh, most often is, boy, this is really disappointing. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear that. I hear that from most of the ladies in my life. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I totally get it, man. Uh, you're preaching to the choir on that one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for maybe people that, uh, that aren't versed in, in kind of uh, who you are and what you're all about, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. And um, after that, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, photography. Okay, great. Well, I am a full-time professional photographer, and most of the photography I do is landscape, wildlife, and travel. Uh, I've been known to dabble in some other types of photography, but nature has always been my first love. I'm currently based in the Minneapolis area of Minnesota, and people always ask me, why are you in Minnesota, of all places? And, uh, you know, I moved here with my wife because her family lives here, and I basically told her, I can go anywhere as long as there's a major airport nearby. So that's why we ended up in Minnesota five years ago or so during the coldest winter in like the past 25 years. So that was a lot of fun. And a uh, fun fact, I didn't realize it, but I actually live 
about five minutes away, just down the street from where Prince lived. I found out that Prince was my neighbor when he died. Oh, so, that's that, like way too late. Yeah, exactly. I was like, wait a minute. I drive by there literally every day. That's like just down the street from my house. And I had no idea that Prince lived there. So, Oh man, that's a bummer. That would have been yeah. really cool to like hang out with him and do some like crazy musical photography collaboration. Yeah, you know, I hear he was like totally into that sort of thing. And so I missed out on a golden opportunity. Yeah. Well, yeah. such is life. Such is life. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm in Minnesota now, uh, which is actually a lovely place to be. And uh, as I said, all I need is access to an airport uh, because I spend most of my time away from Minnesota or even away from the United States, traveling the world, making mm-hmm. photographs. How did you How did you even get started in this business? So that's a funny story. Um, I used to be like pretty much the polar opposite of being like a cool landscape photography guy. I started off as a lawyer and I practiced law for eight years. And what I did is it was after my first year of law school, I took a job with a firm in New York City. It was the first time in my life that I'd actually made any real money. So I went out and bought a camera. And uh I was hooked right away and I realized very quickly that I had made a huge $100,000 mistake on my law school (laughs) education. Uh, So like I was hooked. I remember, uh, so I had two more years of law school and during that time I was taking more and more pictures and then I took a job with a firm in Washington, D.C. And I remember starting with a bunch of other associates that uh, uh, were, you know, just starting with the firm. We all went out to launch me and like 10 other people who were starting the same day I did. And I told every single one of them that I didn't want to be a lawyer, that I wanted to be a professional landscape photographer, and that I was eventually going to do that. And they all just laughed at me. They thought it was a joke. Um, I also told them that I would be there longer than pretty much all of them, because I knew I wasn't going anywhere until I paid off that law school debt that I had accrued. <laughs> right. And and so sure, surely enough, year after year, uh, one by one, they just, they would leave. You know, these big firms have a high attrition rate. And I think at at uh, the end of eight years, when I just couldn't take it anymore, and I just got up and quit, uh, there was one guy left from my class, my incoming class, and he came to my office to say goodbye to me. And he said, you know, I remember that lunch we had eight years ago where you said that you were going to do this for a living and that and that you were going to outlast all of us. And he's like, you're right. It happened. And I'm very, very jealous. So left that life behind. People ask me, you know, did you like hold on to your your bar certification. So you could always fall back on that job. And I say, nope, I was like Pizarro traveling to the new world. As soon as I arrived, I burned my ships and told, you know, told the troops there's no going back. So (laughs) I let my bar membership lapse. I I just refused to go back into that life. And I dove in just feet first. I just went right down into the deep end of the pool as a professional photographer. And that was 15 years ago. Okay. And yeah. before you dived off the diving board of, of insanity, <laughs> how, how, like, were you already, um, were you already pretty well versed in kind of the, the art form of landscape photography or did you just kind of straight up just say, I'm, I don't know anything about this, but I'm doing it. You know, at the time I thought I knew what I was doing. I look back, I look back <laughs> at what I was doing 15 years ago and I say, man, you really sucked plant. You were just awful. I had no idea what I was doing, which is probably the best mental state to be in when you take a plunge of that nature. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I feel like most landscape photographers, if they're being honest and they look at their 
kind of earlier photography, they're probably going to have a similar kind of, you know, reaction like, Oh, what was I doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I have that reaction <laughs> to stuff I shot last week. So yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> Me too. I, actually, that's a good point. Um, I still have that reaction quite a bit myself. So good call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, wow. So going from, uh, being a lawyer to a landscape photographer, obviously that's a very different profession. I'm curious, um, how did you find that transition? Um, I, you know, it's been an interesting transition. I, you know, the truth is, personality-wise, I never really was a good fit for the legal profession. I'm just a little bit too laid back. You know, I would be working on these multi-billion-dollar mergers, and I just didn't care if they went through or not. Like, it just didn't <laughs> matter to me. And so, I think it's fair to say that I was a pretty bad lawyer. Um, and I don't know. It was it was a high-pressure Washington D.C. law firm, and I just didn't enjoy. I mean, the work was was interesting. There was a certain intellectual appeal, but I just didn't enjoy all the hard work and all the constant stress and pressure. And the funny thing is, though, uh, when I made the transition to running my own business, you find out very quickly. I'm sure you found this out yourself, Matt. That uh, it's a full. It's more than a full time job. It's it's everything. I mean, you have to be working constantly. I like. I literally haven't taken a vacation in 15 years, though my wife says that my job is right, one right. giant vacation. But uh, you know, I, I like. I, I never take time off. I even work on weekends. I mean, like every moment is spent uh, trying to keep up with my personal photography, and then trying to figure out a way to monetize what I'm doing. And it's just nonstop. So all that hard work I did as a lawyer prepared me, I think, pretty well for what lay in store for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like so many landscape photographers have um, have this kind of internal mental struggle of, you know, monetization and kind of what that means and how to do it and, you know, like how that impacts uh, how you take photos and how much you dedicate, how much time you dedicate to actually taking photos versus answering emails and doing social media and stuff like that. So I'm curious, like, as you've advanced in your professional career as a landscape photographer, have you seen your relationship with photography change in that time or did it did it did um has your was it everything you thought it would be (laughs) (laughs) well so in the past 15 years the industry has gone through a remarkable transformation uh 15 years ago uh photographers were still shooting color slide film you know, digital was just beginning to make its mark mm-hmm. and most people hadn't switched yet. 15 years ago, photographers still made their living from magazines and other publications. Right. And now that's all but disappeared. I mean, I, you know, my biggest client for the longest time was Popular Photography Magazine, which was the biggest photo magazine in the world. And that went out of business a few years ago. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> I know another, a few other magazines have survived, but you know, it's, it's pretty amazing that you have a, a client that generates, I don't know, maybe 10 or $15,000 of revenue a year. It's, you know, maybe just a, you know, a portion of my overall revenue, but that's still a pretty significant amount of money that suddenly just goes away. Right. And you've got to figure out a way to, to, to make that money somewhere else. And it's not like you can just go to another magazine or something like that. So the whole industry has changed completely. Now, most, especially with landscape photographers, nature photographers, they're making their money from workshops sure. and tours. Or, you know, for me, I've, I've kind of moved away from the tours in the past few years because they were just taking up so much of my time. Mm-hmm. And I was going to a lot of the same places over and over again. And 
I would be spending a lot of time with my clients and you can't really do your own photography no. when, yeah. And, and so I, I stepped away from that, even though it was really good money because I just wanted to have more time for myself. And so in the past three years, I've been making less money, uh, but I've been having more time for my own photography. So it's, it's always difficult to, to find the proper balance there. And, uh, the truth of the matter is, if you're not making the money, it, it makes it harder for you to get in the field. So you have to make some sacrifices. You have to uh, find that balance between your own photography and teaching other people photography. Yeah, no doubt. I, I totally appreciate that. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I personally haven't dove, you know, fully into that deep end of that pool. But uh, I mean, it's because it, I feel like, you know, if, once you turn it into a business, it, it's like, oh man, is this still what I want to be doing for fun? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And and for me, you know, when I'm in the field, that is what, when I'm out there taking photos, that to me is what it's all about. That's why I'm doing this. And so I just kind of try to create this mental division. So when I'm home uh, in the home office, I focus all of my energy on running my business. And when I'm in, in the field, I spend a lot of my time running my business remotely. But when I'm actually out there taking pictures, I shut the rest of that off and I just enjoy myself as much as I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I can't remember where I heard this, but I seem to remember that um, not so long ago, you kind of took a break from landscape and we're focusing more on like portraiture that am i am i just dreaming that or did i remember hearing that somewhere that does sound like a dream <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, good. Uh, yeah i you know I, I i think it's fair to say in the past three to five years i have you know i used to be solely landscape and i think more recently i've been branching out to other areas i uh, was I'm certainly doing a lot of wildlife in the past few years and some travel photography. I even dabbled in street photography, but that was always on the side. That was when I was home and wasn't in the field shooting. I would just go into the city and take photos there mm -hmm. to uh, pass the time. But no, portraiture is not anything that I've ever done. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I heard something where you were like dabbling in something else for a minute. So it must not have been portraiture, but that, that makes sense, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. It could well, have been it, it could have been the street photography because I did put a, a street photography ebook a few years ago. But as I said, I was doing that on the side. It wasn't really that wasn't competing with my travel. And you know, there's a lot of crazy rumors in this industry, so I wouldn't be surprised if someone was saying, "Oh yeah, Ian's like really into photographing portraits of alien visitors or something like that." So, <laughs> were you were you ever on um, the Candid Frame podcast? Yeah, we don't think so. Okay, okay. Well, no, never mind. He has, I know he does a lot of street photography, but okay, okay, cool. Well, cool. So one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about was, um, you know, this idea of creative process. And I know um, if anyone's kind of familiar with, with you and your work and kind of how you like to talk about photography, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a strong emphasis on creativity and, and, and things of that nature. And I'm, I'm kind of just curious, like, how would you describe uh, you your approach to the creative process and maybe kind of like, how would you describe to people what the creative process even means to you? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really great question. And uh, I'm going to try to answer it without talking for about three hours. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, if, if I'm, 
looking to distill my creative process or the most important parts of my creative process, I think, you know, for me, uh, and this is something I try to communicate to others when I'm teaching photography, is my emphasis is on transforming the subject through the creative process. You know, taking just a picture of something is basically a snapshot and it shows the world what your camera sees. But I think that as a photographer, as an artist, one should always be striving to show the world what you as the artist see. So you use this process of, of making a photograph to transform your subject into something other than it is and, you know, put your own personal creative stamp on the subject. So, you know, with landscape, I think a lot of uh, photographers who are beginning, they, they think that the photography is all about the beautiful scenery or capturing the beautiful light. But the more you get into it, the more you start thinking about it, I think the more you'll realize that it's really about finding a way to, to create a creative composition, you know, something that's going to visually appeal to viewers and maybe even capture their imagination on a, an emotional level to tell a story with your photographs and to somehow put your own personal spin on things. Like we've seen a million, I guess the best way to explain this is we've probably all seen a million pictures of some of the famous photo icons like Antelope Canyon or Half Dome in Yosemite. And every single picture you see kind of more or less looks the same. And what I've always tried to do with my photography is if I'm photographing something that's well recognized, I try to do it in a way that hasn't been done before to try to find a, to my own unique personal spin on it. But I also really like going out and finding those subjects that aren't well recognized, that aren't already famous icons. And, you know, using the creative process to find a way to bring those subjects to life and to, uh, you know, wow people with something that other people might not even think of taking a photograph of. So, you know, looking for something that's otherwise mundane or something that's not really that interesting to begin with, I think, and transforming that into something that that really catches people eye. That's that's really kind of at the essence of my my philosophy. It's something very similar, I think, to a lot of the early street photographers. Like uh, I look at the work of Henri Cartier-Bresson and he was walking around the city. He wasn't finding the most gorgeous Italian supermodels to photograph. He was finding the mundane things. He was finding the normal people, the average people, and finding a way to express them in an artistic and beautiful way. And I, I, I really think that that's kind of the guiding philosophy behind my work. So I'm curious, like, uh, has it always been easy for you to, um, to see kind of those visual and emotional connections uh, in the landscape that you're photographing? Or did that take time to refine and hone in? I, I definitely think it, it's taken time to refine and hone in. And it's a constant process. I, you know, I'm always learning how to do this better. And I think it's easy for someone to fall into certain patterns or certain uh, mindset traps where you kind of do the same thing over and over again until you realize what you're doing is not the best way to do it. And, and so, you, you know, you kind of are on this plateau for a while and then you have a breakthrough and epiphany and you get up to the next level. And then it's kind of a long slog on the plateau again until you figure out something else. And I think it's, it's really an iterative process. I'm always trying to find a better way to see the world and to express my vision to others. And I, I, I think that 
you know, we're all born with a certain amount of talent, <clears throat> a certain amount of talent. Like I think it's inevitable that, that some of us are going to be able to see things certain ways better than others. And I have certain types of compositions that I think I, that come more naturally to me and others I struggle with more. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time working on trying to fix those areas where I struggle and to get better um, and to really push my creativity, push what talent I might have naturally to its uh, utmost limit. I think that's the best anyone could ever do. But yeah, it definitely takes practice. I mean, you know, I, I definitely have met some people who don't really seem to have much of an eye for it. Like some people, uh, their brains are just wired a certain way and they, they, they probably don't really see artistic composition the same way other people do. Uh, but I think most of us are able to see it to a certain extent. And once you can see it, then you can do it yourself. It just takes some practice. So, you know, if you're looking at a piece of art, if you're looking at a photograph and someone's talking about the composition and you might know why you, you might know that you like something or don't like it, but you may not know why you like it or don't like it. And when right. someone starts talking about composition, they explain it to you. If that light bulb goes off above your head and you say, Oh, I understand what the photographer is doing here. I, I think I understand this composition. If you can recognize it, then nothing's going to stop you from eventually figuring out how to do it on your own. But it does take a lot of practice. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it takes just, you know, patience and time in terms of seeing, like looking for that kind of stuff when you're walking around and, and in places you're not familiar with. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that, you know, especially for landscape photography, people are always fixated on the scenery in the background. Right. And the, you know, I tell people, if you really want to learn landscape photography, ignore the scenery. I mean, don't completely ignore it, but that's not really what you're photographing. You got to start thinking about the shapes in the foreground that lead to that background scenery, because that's how you're going to make an effective composition. And that's how you're going to tell more of a story uh, about the landscape is looking for those those formations, those shapes that you will put at the bottom of your, your composition to help push the viewer's eye from the bottom to the top, uh, from the near to the far to get them more visually engaged in the composition. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned, uh, that along your career path that you had s some epiphanies or some kind of breaking points where you were like, Oh, do you, do you, do you happen to recall what some of those were? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, probably the biggest epiphany, and I have this over and over again, is the epiphany that I really suck at this. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you do that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think any good artist needs to have that epiphany because if you think you're a great artist, then you're probably wrong. And second of all, you're never really going to advance a, as an artist if you really think you're that mm -hmm. good. So you got to be your own worst critic, I think. Uh, so you're in good company if that's how you feel. Uh, don't worry about it. That's the right path to be on. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I go through, it's hard to really um, point out any particular epiphanies I've had about visual design or composition. I think, you know, quite often it's just, you sort of figure something out. Like, you know, probably the first epiphany I had was the foreground epiphany. And, and you know, the idea that, that the scenery that you're photographing isn't really your subject. It's something that gets pushed to the background in the composition and that you need to find some other visual elements to tie the whole thing together and to, to effectively lead the viewer's eye where you want them to go. Uh, I think another epiphany I had was that uh, wide angle photography is totally awesome. 
uh, and is probably the uh, the most difficult type of photography to do, but also the most challenging and rewarding photography. Um, and what I love about going wide, especially with landscape, is that you can you can really pull in so many interesting shapes and create these sophisticated compositions where you have you know foreground shapes, maybe some leading lines coming in, and you've got some shapes in the clouds in the sky above your landscape, and all this can bring the eye to the landscape in the background of your composition in a very effective way. So like that was a big epiphany when I realized how important weather is. I think a lot of landscape photographers in the beginning think like tourists. They think that blue skies are great for photography. And I've learned the hard way, and I'm sure you have as well, Matt, that that blue skies are the absolute worst for landscape photography. You really need those clouds to create the shapes and you really need to wait for the clouds to, to create compositional shapes that are going to work with the rest of the shapes in your composition. So finding a way to tie together foreground and sky in a pleasing way is, is a challenging thing, but I think it's something that everyone should strive for when they're making landscape photos. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I'm often cursed with the, uh, the blue skies and, um, and what I've kind of learned in the last couple of years is just use less sky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's okay to have like only a sliver of sky and use other shapes in the foreground or midground to, to create that, uh, that composition. Um, I'm curious, you know, I, I've, I've read a lot about, you know, you, you, you use this term a lot in your kind of posts and things of kind of this idea of visual flow. Um, and I'm curious, how would you even describe what visual flow is to somebody? Um, I'm sure some landscape photographers are like, oh, yeah, visual flow, that's yeah, blah, blah, blah. But some other people might be like, what the heck is visual flow? Well, the way I like to think about it and the way I describe it to people is to imagine that you are standing in a stream, you know, like not a big river or something that's going to sweep you downstream, something where you could comfortably wade in the stream and not get washed away. Uh, and, and you're looking downstream and you see the water flowing past you and around you and it keeps going and it might tumble over a boulder or, you know, a rapid here or there, but it is going to keep on going. Nothing is going to stop the flow of that water as it moves away from you into the background. And this is the effect that I like to achieve with my compositions is this this inevitable pull this uh this ceaseless force that drives the viewer from the 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 near part of the composition into the background part of the composition it just pulls them in and doesn't let go and and you know it's the same thing as the water flowing past you is there's nothing stopping it so if you can create that visual effect that draws the viewer in and keeps them going all the way uh, through your composition, then you've achieved, I think, good mm -hmm. visual flow. Uh, so one thing that people, I think, uh, don't really think about when they're making photographs, when they're just beginning, is that a photograph is two dimensions. And so we perceive the world in three dimensions. And when you take a photograph, you take that dynamic three-dimensional world and you squish it down into this flat uh, 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 static rectangle. Rectangle. So you lose the the feeling of energy, of motion, the passage of time, and you lose that sense of depth. And you have to use composition to recreate this feeling of energy and this feeling of depth. But you're not really creating it in a two-dimensional two static medium. You have to create the illusion of depth and the illusion of energy and motion. And you do this through composition. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I feel like... Um 
<clears throat> for most people uh, starting out as photographers, that uh, composition is probably one of the hardest things for people to really hone in, hone in on, and eventually begin to master. Because, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know about other people, but you know, ISO exposure triangle. Like for me, that was easy. Like that's just technical understanding of light and aperture and all that. Like that was simple for me, but composition and still to this day is like every time I go out like composition is the most challenging thing and I think rightfully deserves probably the most attention um that that you should be put putting out there in terms of what you're thinking about yeah I mean absolutely I couldn't agree more I think composition is really the way you put your own artistic spin on a subject I mean you know anyone can go out and take a snapshot of something beautiful of beautiful scenery but through a creative composition, you show the world what you see as opposed to just, you know, what your camera sees, what you're pointing the camera at. And I, I do think a lot of people struggle with it. It's very difficult. I know I struggle with it. Uh, there are certain ways of seeing that don't come naturally to me. And it's a real challenge for me to push past those those kind of inborn limitations that I have. And I know that uh, most photographers uh, have a tough time with composition as well. And I think the best way to get better at composition is to think critically about it. You know, I remember way back when, when I still was uh, working as a lawyer, dreaming of being a professional photographer. I had a, a friend, a good friend, George Stocking, uh, who had, had been a pro for a long time already. He was one of the old, uh, old film guys. Um, and he sat me down and looked through my portfolio of photos. And I would show him a shot and he would say, do you like this? And I'd say, well, yeah, I like this, this photo. And he'd say, why? And I would, I would sit there and stumble. I'd be like, well, uh, I don't know, pretty colors. And, <laughs> and he said, he said, no, the reason why you like this. And then he started talking about the shapes. He started talking about the composition, how, uh, you know, a foreground rock could help lead the eye into the scene. And it pointed this way or that way. And on some intuitive level, I think I was seeing this in the field, like I was making compositions that were, you know, marginally interesting. I sure. just didn't know why I was doing it. And yeah. having someone start teaching me the vocabulary of composition was an important first step to me starting to see this more, more successfully. And, you know, it, it, there's no magic words about it. You know, I, I talk about the vocabulary of composition. You can make up your own vocabulary. When I wrote my ebook on composition, visual flow, that's exactly what I did. Uh, you know, people read that book and say, did you study art theory? And I'm like, no, I bet an art theorist would look at that book and look at the way I talk about composition and cringe because I'm not using all the accepted vocabulary. It doesn't <laughs> matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you come up with your own vocabulary or you use someone else's. The key thing is to be thinking objectively and critically about how your choices of visual design affect the, the, the motion of the viewer's eye through the composition and to be thinking about what works and what doesn't work. And when you start making those critical associations, when you start you know, figuring out why something is pleasing to you or why something isn't pleasing to you, when you're in the field, you start looking for those things. You, once it's become part of your vocabulary, it is uh, part of your creative toolkit. So you can go out there and look for, you know, for example, people talk about leading lines all the time. Sure. You know, once you understand what a leading line is, and I think that's a pretty easy uh, concept for most people, but once you you understand what it is and you see some photographs where leading lines have been used effectively when you're out in the field, 
you can look for leading lines and figure out a way to use them yourself. So the more you think about this, the more you expand your own personal composition vocabulary, the easier it is for people to go out there and find these things and to utilize them themselves. Absolutely. So kind of using this idea of composition and using leading lines, I think there's a lot of people that I think of that are kind of masters at this. And and what I've come to learn about some of these photographers is that, you know, there's many times that those aren't actually what that that image wasn't actually what they found in in the field. It's what they created in the digital darkroom, um, you know, and because, you know, let's be honest, like in nature, like finding things that work well together, like that's really tough to do. Yes, it is. So I'm curious, like what has been kind of your approach to, I guess, you know, I hate to use the word compositing, but like, are you always using what's there available to you in the field? Or are you also using what's available to you in your library of images? Well, let, let's uh, let's just call it what it is. I mean, I, I think that uh, what we're talking about here is aggressively uh, photo manipulated images. And sure. I mean, you could call it many different things. Um, you know, I, I sometimes will refer to it as, as mixed media. It's, uh, it's photography mixed with computer graphics or graphic arts. Uh, but it, it certainly isn't photography, at least the way I think of photography. So when I started, I was shooting color slide film and there was no such thing as processing the image file. You took a shot, what you did before you triggered the shutter determined what the photograph looked like. And everyone was using the same film more or less, and no one was processing their own film. Uh, They were sending color slide film into a lab and it was being processed according to a standard procedure. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't, there wasn't any of this sort of post-processing manipulation. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what photography is. And, you know, also within the tradition for landscape photography is before color slide film came to dominate landscape photography, uh, in the age of black and white, people like Ansel Adams would do some work in the darkroom. But, you know, Ansel Adams was kind of a traditionalist. He, you know, mainly his challenge was separating tonal values in black and white. Mm -hmm. You know, you photograph a green leaf next to a red leaf in black and white, they look the same. So you have to separate those colors uh, to make them look different in black and white. So that was mostly his challenges. You know, he wasn't going in and, uh, you know, he was doing that, the, the dodging and the burning and, you know, lightening and darkening parts of the photo, but he wasn't going in and replacing a sky and putting in a sky from a shot that he took, you know, six years before or something like that. And that's become pretty common with landscape photography. Now people using the digital dark room to excessively manipulate the images. And I think, you know, there, there's obviously a, a scale, like a sliding scale of what kinds of, manipulations people are doing. And to some extent, it's it's really a spectrum or a continuum. If you're, if you're processing a raw file, you've entered into that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a question of like, uh, you know, on a scale of one to 10, are you more of a one or are you like a 15? <laughs> uh, right. And, and I, you know, I know a lot of people out there that, that are in fact replacing skies. They are also aggressively warping objects. Like I've seen photographers who will take a picture with the mountains in the background and then they'll warp the mountains so they look twice as tall as they did in the original photograph. Sometimes they're compositing multiple perspectives. Like they might shoot the background with a telephoto lens and then shoot the foreground with a wide angle lens and combine it so that the background mountains look really big. And like, uh, you know, I all sorts of stuff that, you know, I've seen people who have literally 
turn the lights on in their photo. They've shot something in the middle of the day on a cloudy day. And by the time they're done with it, it looks like the most epic sunrise you've ever seen in your life. And uh, I've seen people add light rays. I mean, you can go out there and find these tutorials on, on the internet for free, how to do all this stuff. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with all that in the sense that like art is art and there's, you know, there's no boundaries, there's no definitions for art, but I also don't really think it's photography or at least it's not fully photography anymore. And it gets to a point where the computer graphics is overwhelming the original photographic output. I'm more of a traditionalist. I started with film. That's the way I think about photography. I'm not what I would consider a purist. Uh, you know, we are working with raw files and they're not intended to be a final product. So there is some subjective wiggle room when you're processing those files. You know, people make different judgments about how much saturation or contrast to add um, and, you know, things like that. But I would say on that scale of one to 10, that I'm probably more, you know, closer to like a somewhere in between one or a three uh, in terms of the digital manipulation. I'm not, you know, 100% a purist. I, I do like, you know, I do embrace that earlier tradition from Ansel Adams in the dark room of doing selective brightening or darkening of parts of the image to help emphasize the visual flow. Sure. Uh, but, you know, when I give uh, seminars showing my digital process, inevitably, I've always got someone sitting in the classroom who says, that's it. I don't believe you. So <laughs> they, they see what I'm doing and they're like, really, that's all you're doing? <laughs> like, it's a pretty basic process. So, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting to hear you talk, talk about it the way you'd have, because I feel like I'm probably somewhere in that, I don't know, three to four, five range, depending on my mm-hmm. mood. But uh, um, I've definitely dabbled in like the, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I was a 15 for a minute. So I've... <laughs> I've definitely been there. So, um, and I think yeah. there's some appeal to that though. Like, you know, if, if, if you can see, if you have a photograph and you can see compositionally what's missing and, mm-hmm. and you know, like, Oh, if I only could just bring in a couple of elements here and here and maybe warp it a little bit this way or that way, like it's going to make the composition so much better. I can totally understand, uh, the appeal of that, uh, it's just interesting to hear you say that. One of the things you said earlier was that um, you like to use what you see. And I think I, I really appreciate that because I think there's a inherent challenge in that approach, but there's also massive rewards if you can pull it off. Well, yeah. And I, I really think it's just a question of what kind of uh, artist you want to be. And um, you know, I understand the appeal of it. I mean, sometimes I'll go to a, a location, I'll spend a lot of time and money getting there. Uh, I might be in a spot for two weeks and it just rains constantly and you don't get the light. And maybe you found this incredible epic composition and it would really suck to walk away and not have uh, that amazing sunset sky. And so the temptation is there, especially when a lot of people are going ahead and just putting in that beautiful sky uh, no matter what. So I, you know, I, I don't tell people, you know, what to do. I don't think there's any bright lines. I, you know, my only uh, thing is that I hope people are at least honest about what they're doing, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I think that that helps out a lot. But the truth of the matter is it's, it's a real challenge because we're all competing in the same space. You know, the general public that's consuming our photographs, they, they don't really necessarily know the difference between what's, you know, a more traditional photograph and what's been aggressively manipulated. 
And so it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like you're a cyclist and you show up to the tour de France and suddenly the competition has been opened up to guys with motorcycles. Uh, you know, so, (laughs) so it's definitely created some challenges for the industry, um, and for the individual photographers. So, you know, I'm more of a, of a photo traditionalist and I, I definitely do work very, very hard to get it right in the field and to get those magical moments when you get that amazing light and color. Uh, rather than concocting it on the computer. But that also does mean that I'm often very disappointed and I miss a lot of shots. And it can be very, you know, personally frustrating. Um, and as I said, I, I definitely understand the temptation. I, and I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with anyone doing what they're doing. But uh, that's just my approach. So, No, I appreciate that. I mean, the last, <clears throat> the last two years of my photography, I've taken that approach. Like, I only use what I see and I don't composite at all anymore. And um, and it's a lot more rewarding. It's a lot more challenging, but it's, I'm a lot more proud of the images that I produce too. So, um, you know, that's a, I think it's just your personal relationship with your photography. And one of the things I was curious about though, is you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, it's mixed media, it's digital art, it's no longer photography. And I've heard that from a lot of people. And I know my, me personally, I've said that before too, but kind of playing devil's, devil's advocate for a second, um, do you think it, does it really matter what we call it? Does it matter? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, as I, I did say earlier that, I mean, art is art and art doesn't really have boundaries or definitions. It is definitely still art. Um, and, and maybe on some level, on that level, it doesn't really matter. I, you know, for me, it's just more of a, of a practical issue where you've got everyone competing in the same space. Uh, and, you know, it's, there's, you know, you've got traditionalists competing with with people who are are doing a lot of aggressive manipulation, and it's it's just you know it just becomes a challenge for for individuals who may decide personally to to take one path or the other. Uh, there are you know mm-hmm. practical consequences to that, and uh, you know they and they can be for you know if you're trying to run your own photography business, there can be some very uh, significant practical uh, financial consequences to that. So these these are all things that you know, I think a lot of people who are doing this for a living think a lot about uh, and talk a lot about. So, you know, on, on one level, you're right. It doesn't really matter. I mean, art is art and whether it's a digital painting or a photograph, uh, we could still appreciate it no matter what. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think at the end of the day, you just have to ask yourself, are you comfortable with that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that leads me to another question that I had for you. And I think it's, it ties in really nicely with this uh, idea of digital manipulation, I think. And that is, um, why do you take photos to begin with? Well, so, you know, that that's a great question. And you're right. It is directly related to this. I mean, I take photos to begin with because I love nature. And what I love about photography is when those really rare special moments happen you know the the world is in total chaos everything is pretty random and when the forces of nature randomly converge to create what can be a pleasing composition uh those are really special moments and that's really to me what being a photographer is all about whether it's landscape whether it's wildlife whether it's people uh, travel any type of photography you're waiting for that convergence to happen and you have to be ready you know this is what you know i'm referencing uh, cartier bresson again you have to be ready to capture that decisive moment 
And for me, there's nothing more incredible than being out in a beautiful landscape location, uh, preferably somewhere in the wilderness where there's not anyone else around, mm -hmm. and having the sunset of a lifetime happen. To really capture that is is incredible to me. So that's probably why I've stuck closer to that traditional photography model is because I just don't understand the need to manufacture those moments on the computer. Mm -hmm. Like to me, being there and witnessing it in person and then finding a way to translate that event into a photograph that people enjoy. That's what it's all about for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too, man. Uh, you know, like I said before, I dabbled in composites and I did quite a few of them myself. And when I look at my composites versus the photos that, you know, it was a magical moment. It was a real moment. It was a approxim it was a very close approximation of what my experience was. It's an emotional experience. Like those are the photos that I'm most proud of and that I'm most happy about and that I'm most excited to show other people. So um, whether or not that makes them better photos or not, I don't know that I really care, <laughs> but I know yeah, for me, yeah. Those are the photos that I am personally invested and connected to as an artist. Yeah. So that's cool to hear you have very a very similar thought process on that. And I'm sure other people who do composites like that's they have an emotional connection to that as well. Somehow. Yeah. I I mean I, I you know, I I, I struggle to talk about this because I don't I don't want to sound disparaging of that. Oh I mean, totally. I, I, so I'm yeah. the same way. I, yeah. I really struggle too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I think some people, uh, you know, like my good friend, Miles Morgan, he's, he's definitely a unrepentant uh, Photoshop <laughs> manipulator. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's very free about it. And, you know, we've talked about this. He just, that's what he likes to do. And, you know, he's, he's not doing this full time. He's just having fun. He likes to create these beautiful images and, you know, I'm cool with that. I don't, I don't have a problem. I, I never scold him for it or anything like that. Um, and, you know, but for me, it, it's just, it, you know, just being there and having it happen is, is just the most amazing thing. And, and, uh, uh, you know, to me, it's really more about the experience. The photograph is, is the afterthought. The photograph is just my way of capturing the experience, but the experience is, is paramount to me. Mm -hmm. No, I, <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. I was curious too, like, uh, if you'd be willing to maybe kind of go back and talk a little bit, a bit more about, um, creative process, because, I I think that a lot of photographers, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but uh, I find that a lot of people really struggle with this idea that they even have a creative process. Like someone asked me the other day, the other day like, what is your creative process? And I was like, I look for stuff that I think is interesting and I take a picture of it. You know what I mean? Like that's my creative process. And, and I, I guess part of my question is like, do you think that, you think as photographers, are we, are we making more out of this than we should be? Or do you feel like, um, for, for maybe just some people have a much more creative mind than maybe other people do. I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, you're probably right. We're probably just full of shit. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. It's, well, I, so I think what you said, like, I look for interesting things to photograph and then I photograph them. That's, that's probably a very honest answer, though. I suspect that there is, you know, maybe you haven't thought objectively about what that process is, but you obviously have a way of seeing the world that you, there are certain things that inspire you. And when those moments or those subjects present themselves, 
that's when you start triggering the shutter. So there is a process there. It may be kind of uh, at a subjective or a subconscious level, but I think it's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to be honest with you, I mean, I, I'm pretty much doing the same thing. I mean, I, I do a lot of photo education, so I'm talking a lot about what this process is. And I'll tell people, you know, what might have attracted my eye. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think the way you described it is probably exactly what I'm doing. I'm going out looking for interesting stuff. But what is interesting to me is going to be different than what's interesting to you. And that's where our processes or our personal vision, that's where there's divergence. And that's and that's where, you know, all the awesome stuff happens is when we see the world in different ways. Yeah, so along those same lines, um, where do you, how do you see the current state of the industry in landscape photography? Because um, I don't know about you, but one of the observations I've had is that there's a lot of um, homogeneity in the industry right now, like people copying other people, people going out and capturing the same shots that they saw on Instagram. Like they're looking for, uh, you know, the same stuff that they've seen over and over again, and that's what sells and that's what's popular and that, and it works mm-hmm. and it sells and it's great. But how do you, how are you seeing that play out as a professional and an educator? Um, yeah, I think you're probably right. There probably is a lot of that going on that's been going on for a long time. Uh, I, I kind of tune out uh, what's going on. Uh, I don't really follow a lot of photographers on Instagram, maybe just some of my friends just to see what they're up to. Um, and I do that on purpose. I actually think that the best way to develop your own personal artistic vision is to stop looking at other people's photos because I think it's human nature. If you see something awesome, you covet that. You want to have that same shot. You want to get the same reaction from people. So by tuning all that stuff out, that allows me to focus more on, you know, what it is that I find personally appealing and, and then I stop chasing other people's shots. So I, I definitely recommend when you're first beginning, look at as much photography, as much, as much art as you possibly can, so you can learn. But at some point you got to turn that all off. Um, The truth of the matter is there are literally millions and millions of people around the world taking photographs Mm -hmm. and there's a limited number of subjects and, you know, probably there's a limited number of ways of seeing the world in a compelling way. Um, and so inevitably, inevitably we're going to be tripping over each other in terms of subject matter. And there will be a lot of uniformity. That's probably part of the reason why I, you know, several years ago decided to, to navigate away from being solely a landscape photographer and start embracing other types of photography because I wanted to, Uh, break free from the copycat photography that I was seeing so often in landscape. I wanted to develop a portfolio that was a bit different and that would allow me to express my personal vision better. And I I personally feel that by embracing uh, types of photography that you're not comfortable with, that you're not uh, really good at, that's when you get better as an artist. Because I think, you know, crossover art is, is where you really start learning because every type of photography requires a different way of seeing things. And I know that when I shoot wildlife, for example, I'm thinking like a landscape photographer. And when I'm, when I'm shooting a landscape, I might be, mm-hmm. might be thinking about some of the techniques I learned when I did some street photography. So these are how I keep my photography fresh. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't worry so much about what everyone else is doing because everyone's going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, every now and then you'll see these trends rise and fall, um, and I just keep doing what I'm doing and hope that 
the people who look at my work will at least, if they don't like my work, at least they'll say, you know what, Ian Plant's doing something that is unique. It sucks, but it's different from everyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, I have so many questions about that. So I guess, first of all, like, why, why is that important to you? Because I've heard a lot of criticism of other podcast episodes on this podcast from other well-established photographers that, you know, they may, may be coming off as elitist or, you know, like, oh, you need to go out and get your own stuff and don't take pictures of icons. And, and like, while I totally appreciate that, I'm curious, like for you as Ian Plant, like, why is that important to you? Well, I mean, I, I want to photograph stuff that, I mean, like, it's impossible, I think, to photograph stuff that's never been photographed before, but I at least want to do it my own way. Like, I don't really want to just go and take the same shot that everyone else has taken. And I, you know, honestly, I, I can't even understand why that might even be controversial. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, <laughs> I, it's fine. I don't have a problem with people going out and shooting the icons. Um, that's great. They're icons for a reason. They're beautiful. Um, but at some point, you begin to realize that all you're doing is setting up in someone else's tripod holes, that you're following someone else's uh, vision, someone else's path. And you really do want to just kind of strike out on your own and find the unique and interesting things that, uh, that people, other people aren't photographing. And so it's important to me because it's, it's really kind of why I, I got into this is to, is to do my own thing and to find my own way of expressing uh, my vision of the world. So uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly encourage people to break free from the icons and I, I hope it doesn't come off as elitist because I, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's the opposite of elitist. I think it's, it's actually very uh, egalitarian, <laughs> uh, which, you know, basically the idea is that all of us uh, have the capacity to go and find our own unique artistic vision if we just have the courage to leave the path of others and strike out on our own and, and just kind of be creative and be open-minded. Yeah, I'm like, uh, <clears throat> your photos can look just as bad as mine. Come over here. Trust me. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree. I appreciate that. I think it's, um, I feel the same way. I just uh, wanted to kind of hear kind of why you do that. That's cool. So you've, you've really gotten like some criticism from, from folks about that sort of thing? Or I'm curious. Yeah. The response I get is often like, why does, why do you care how I do the thing that I like to do? If I want to go out and take pictures of icons 24, seven, why do you care about that? And I think the point that I keep trying to make is I don't care, but you might also enjoy this other experience that other people are having. Um, if you want. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, presumably people are tuning into this podcast because they they want to they want to learn something or they want to think about the world in, in a different way. So uh, I'll, that's all we can really do, I think, is encourage people like, I, you know, I don't think there's any silver bullet, any magic formula to anything that I'm saying. You know, like I just throw ideas out there. If you find them helpful, that's great. If you don't, then that's fine too. There are no rules. Uh, there are only tools that you could put in your creative toolkit. So, you know, I feel like my job as a photo educator is just to, to, to you know, uh, dump my head over and let everything in my brain come spilling out and people can sort through it and figure out what works best for them. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So along those lines, you know, taking that more challenging and potentially rewarding path of um, looking for your own, you know, your own vision and your own photos, 
What would you say are some of the biggest benefits you've seen from that approach in your own photography? Well, certainly it's allowed me to pursue subjects and locations that I want to pursue without worrying about whether they're going to be a hit on Instagram or something like that. Uh, you know, like I think there's a, a lot of locations around the world that, you know, for landscape where people go to it, you know, a lot of these places become the new hit location uh, and everyone wants to go there. And, you know, I've certainly done my fair share of these, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not like I've never photographed an icon before. Um, sure. But, you know, like, uh, you, you know, for example, uh, the ice beach in Iceland is is obviously something that is a huge photo icon these days. And I've certainly photographed it. But, you know, in recent years, when I've traveled to Iceland and I wasn't leading a tour, I would avoid it. I wouldn't go there. I would go out and explore other areas. And, and you know, the truth is there are a lot of amazing things that are out there in this world that uh, haven't been completely inundated by uh, photographers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I tell people, look, icons are icons because someone discovered them and made a successful photograph of them. And that's why they became an icon. You know, it, it became an icon because at some point Ansel Adams or some other person uh, went there and made a good photograph. If, right. if Ansel Adams had been standing in front of Half Dome in Yosemite and he made a bad photograph of it, uh, it might've taken a lot longer for it to become a photography icon until someone actually went there and took a good photo. So, you know, when you get off the beaten path, you're just looking for the next icons, I guess. You're looking for the icons that other people haven't discovered. But what I really love doing is is finding those ephemeral moments. So it's not so much about the the composition of the location, uh, the, the fixed composition maybe like of the landforms, but the composition that might emerge when the clouds create a certain shape and it's interacting with the landscape in, in a specific way uh, where that composition works only because of those factors coming together. And, you know, those are the kinds of shots that can't be repeated. Uh, people can't go to those locations again and make that same shot because unless you have that, that specific uh, interaction of shapes and events, it doesn't work. And, you know, for me, that's that's what I really love doing. So it's really just a matter of getting out there and exploring no matter where you are, keeping an open mind and waiting for those moments to happen. Mm -hmm. And they can happen anywhere. So, you know, my approach allows me to just travel. You know, people always ask me, you know, where, what's your next trip? And I just say, wherever the wind takes me. So if I have a whim <laughs> and I want to go someplace, I go there. And I don't worry about whether I'm going to get a great shot there or not. I don't worry about, like, I don't spend all my time researching to see the photos that people have taken there and then, you know, have a shot list or something. And I, you know, try to recreate it. I just go there. I explore, I work hard, I have fun. I enjoy the location and I do the best I can. So, um, you know, this, this approach really, you know, my artistic approach, I think ties up very nicely with just my general life philosophy. Mm -hmm. That's cool. It's funny as you were talking about that, uh, you mentioned the ice beach island and, I went to Iceland oh, a year and a half ago now and uh, for the first time. And uh, I was dreading actually going to that beach because of all the reasons why you stated, you know, it's, it's, it's been shot before all those things. And actually what I found my, my experience to be there, and maybe that was just because I approached it similarly to how you were describing, is um, it's a very dynamic place. And there's lots of different compositions that you can discover that won't be there in 10 hours because the ice has melted. And um, I don't know, I thought that was actually kind of a fun, a fun place to kind of play around and practice. I don't think I got anything that I fell in love with, but it was 
it was a heck of a lot of fun just trying to combine elements of, you know, the black sand and the ice and the different shapes in the ice and then the waves behind it and the sky. And it's a pretty cool place to, to kind of just, you know, dabble with different ideas. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a really, it's a beautiful spot. There's no doubt about it. I love going there. <laughs> and you know, what's, what's really amazing is the times you go there and there aren't like 40 photographers uh, yeah. that are, that are there. Sometimes you go there and there's no one there. Um, and you're right. Like dynamic landscapes, I think are much more fun than those static landscapes that never change because that's when you get the opportunity to, to, you know, find something that's unique and different from what's been done before. Cool, man. Well, I want to learn a little bit more about shutter monkeys. Okay. Well, shutter monkeys is everything I've been saying about video uh, <laughs> multiplied by a thousand. So this is a new photo brand that I've launched. I launched with uh, my good friend and colleague, Zach Mills and shutter monkeys is primarily two things. One, it's a photo community and two, it's all about that, that video experience. So what we're trying to do with Shutter Monkeys is essentially create like a, for lack of a better way of putting it, a reality TV uh, show about photography. So it's about the field experience. And there's an educational component to it. There's a travel component to it. Uh, I like to say that it's as much entertainment as it is education. It's about the crazy things that we do in the field to make the photographs that we make. And so, for example, we talked about my trip to Argentina with Erez Marone. Well, you, you know, you don't have to listen about it. You can go to Shutter Monkeys and watch the video that we filmed of our experience exploring the Argentina desert uh, and photographing the eclipse. It's a great video. We also did a video, Eris and I, recently when we were in Greenland. Uh, and that's a cool one because you get to see my face after my drone attacked me. Um, <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you thought that my face couldn't get any worse, wait until you see what it looked like after the drone got done with me. Um, and uh, Zach and I have filmed a number of uh, videos. Zach just got back from a, a trip out to photograph grizzly bears in Alaska and he filmed some video of that adventure. So really the idea is we're trying to take the outdoors and bring it inside to the viewer. So we give the viewer that personal connection that you were just talking about. Uh, we teach them some things with the video uh, and we and we just give them that vicarious experience so that they know what it's like to be out in the field. So Shutter Monkeys is leaning very heavily into this uh, video experience, and we're trying to build a community of like-minded, passionate photographers around that experience. And uh, why not? Why not just do a YouTube channel? Oh well, you know we are on YouTube, uh, so that's definitely part of our our overall strategy. But I I'm thinking you know beyond YouTube. Um, I, you know, as I said earlier, I used the words reality TV show and I, I kind of hesitate to use those words because people think of like the Jersey shore when they think of reality TV show. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we'll probably have a little bit of that in this, you know, as I said, it's kind of about the adventure and the crazy things that we do when we're in the field, uh, you know, and getting attacked by a drone. That's a very like uh, reality TV type of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, so I want to have that, that, that vicarious experience and that entertainment experience is part of these videos. Um, but the key component there is the word TV. And that's what we're really aiming for is to try to make this like a, like a TV series for people. So it's, it's, you know, not only are we are trying to do a higher end production, um, you know, for example, we're beginning to experiment with getting a professional film crew along so that uh, the photographers, you know, me, Zach, or some of the other professionals that we're working with as part of the Shutter Monkeys Pro Team, people like Eris Marome and Kurt Budliger and Joe Rosbeck, Sarah Marino and Ron, 
her husband, you know, some people I've been working with for a long time who are just great people and a lot of fun on camera. Uh, we want to get them all involved in this experience. So if we've got a professional crew with us, we can do the photographs and just be, you know, entertaining and fun. And uh, the crew is responsible for getting the video. We're still working on that part. Um, but that's the idea is we're trying to, we're trying to build this whole experience. And I'm hoping that someday we're going to be able to bring that experience to something a little bit higher than YouTube, you know, like who knows, maybe Netflix in the future. It's a possibility. It's what I'm hoping for. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, I think Ron Coscarosa could be a, 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 you know, he could be your, just your, your funny guy. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't want to call him the comic relief because he's a great, he is. Yeah. He's a great photographer and, uh, but he's also a super fun guy. <laughs> oh, he's absolutely one of the funniest people I've ever met in my yeah. entire life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He is, you know, the two of them hanging out with Ron and Sarah is just a real hoot. Absolutely. It's almost a hoot and a half as a matter of fact. Yeah. Well, hoot and three quarters, <laughs> let's say. Um, well, let's, uh, I want to learn a little bit more too about, um, what, what do you got going on with this, uh, ultimate landscape course? Cause that, or should I say, the ultimate landscape course <laughs> in in a world with <laughs> yeah well that's uh that's that's the proper amount of gravitas for it this is a video course this is the first uh premium course produced by shutter monkeys uh and it is a video based landscape photography course that follows me into the field so it's got over 2 hours plus of of field video plus another hour of digital darkroom processing videos. It's got an ebook attached to it as well. So it's a comprehensive uh, landscape photography course. It's really designed to teach people how to do it. So it it talks a lot about the mechanics of it, like what you mentioned earlier, the the ISO and the aperture and mm-hmm. and learning how to set your focus and all that stuff. So it definitely talks about all that, but it also talks a lot about the creative side of photography. So it goes with me into the field as I scout out locations, what I'm looking for when I'm approaching a landscape scene generally, what I'm looking for when I'm trying to find a good foreground to work with that stunning background, the kinds of weather and light I'm waiting for. So it takes a deep dive into all of this. I like to call it the closest thing to being on a photo workshop with me without having to pay two or three thousand dollars to be there. Cool. I like it. Yeah. That sounds uh yeah. that sounds like a really great project. Um how much how much time investment is that taking on your on your end? Well, uh probably a lot more than I care to admit. <laughs> and uh <laughs> You know, the great thing about, as you probably learned working for yourself, is that there's this thing called sweat equity, and uh, it comes for free. So, yeah, I put in a lot of labor. This has been a labor of love. I've been working on this uh, project for a bit over a year now, um, and it's built on some earlier work I've done. I've done some earlier landscape photography ebooks that were the building blocks of this. So this is actually something that's been in the works for several years okay. now. And it's it's an ongoing project. You know, part of what we're offering is as part of the course uh, bundle is free updates as I travel around the world and I've got new and exciting. Uh, when I have those epiphanies about my photography, I like to uh, record a new video for people so that they can learn with me as I go along. It's like, uh, guys, check it out. I learned how to use HDR and photomatics. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> guys, 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 I just had an epiphany. Everything else I taught you in the course is all wrong. Yeah, just bracket and photomatics. It's the bomb. <laughs> 
Well, cool, man. So like winding down, who do you think our listeners would want to hear here on the podcast? Who do you have in mind for us to hear? Well, uh, definitely, if you want to get a slightly different perspective than mine, you should talk with Zach Mills, who's my partner in Shutter Monkeys. Uh, He probably skews more heavily towards wildlife, and he's got some pretty interesting stories uh, photographing endangered species in all sorts of exotic locations like Kenya and Indonesia and other places around the world. So you should definitely check him out. And some of my other uh, friends, uh, I don't know if they've been on the podcast before or not. I know Eras has already been on the podcast, but uh, Kurt Budliger and uh, Joe Rosbach are two uh, photographers I've worked with for a long time who are just great guys and would be perfect for an interview. Yeah, uh, actually, neither Kurt nor Joe have been on the show yet, and um, I've actually met both of them twice. And I would definitely, um, I would definitely love to get them on. So those are great suggestions. I appreciate it. Yeah, like so. Basically, I judge my friends in the photo business and also the people I'd want to do an interview with based on the following criteria. Would I or would I not want to spend a month in a North Korean prison with that person? And uh, yeah, so like Joe, Kurt, those are two guys I could definitely spend a month in a North Korean prison with. Not that I want to spend a month in a North Korean prison, but if I had to, I would pick one of those guys. They're great guys. Well, Ian, be careful what you wish for. Well, awesome, Ian. This has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you sharing your your wisdom and your and your thought processes with the listeners. So, thank you so much, man. Well, thanks for having me on, Matt. I've had a fantastic time talking with you, and I hope to do it again sometime. Sweet, I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks to Ian for coming on to the podcast. I had a really fantastic time uh, talking to you, man. It's been really fun, and. Uh, Check out the liner notes. You can get a discount off of all of Ian's uh, ultimate guide to landscape and also his uh, visual flow ebook. Just use the code landscape10. That's L-A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E-1-0. And you can get 10% off all that stuff. And uh, yeah, just check out the liner notes for that stuff. And uh, you'll get some sweet, sweet instructional videos. Check it out. Well, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review over on iTunes. It's absolutely one of the best ways to support the podcast, other than supporting us on Patreon, of course. Um, You can also join the conversation over on Nature Photographers Network, or NPN, and over on Patreon. There's been some great comments and some fantastic discussion worth checking out. Not only that, But NPN is the premier community for landscape and nature photographers. If you have not joined yet, you are truly missing out. So what are you waiting for? Well, over on Patreon, we have also been doing themed photo contests where patrons submit photographs based on a theme. The current theme is changing seasons. So let's see all of those great photographs over on the community board. I will be sending the winner a $20 gift card. Well, as we have previously mentioned, we have finally reached one of our goals that we set for the podcast back in 2017. I promised in 2017 that when we reached the $1,000 a month mark over on Patreon, thank you, that I would develop a Landscape Photography Conservation Award. I have developed the criteria for that award, and I am actively seeking nominations. You can learn more about how to nominate other photographers or yourself in the liner notes. We have received some amazing donations and sponsorships from listeners and brands that are aligned with our message of responsible landscape photography. 
So far, the award is over $1,500, and we have some amazing bonus prizes given to us by some amazing brands, including Shimoda Designs. Ian and his amazing team at Shimoda have sent me the next generation of their 60-liter camera backpack, which I'm about to put through all the tests this fall in the field. So, with that being said, Shimoda is donating to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award a camera bag of their choice, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case, a $779 value. Uh, next up, we have Reed Art and Imaging. Uh, Reed is a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado. They're personally my print lab of choice for my high-end acrylic prints, and they're donating to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award a $500 credit towards the purchase of one of their amazing acrylic prints. Well, next up is Tamron. Uh, the amazing camera lens manufacturer is donating to the winner of the award a 45mm f1.8 lens, a $599 value. Next up, we have Viewbug. Viewbug is a popular photo sharing and contest website. They are donating a Pro Plus membership to the winner of the award, which is $179 value. And lastly, QT Luang is donating a limited edition copy of his award-winning photo book, Treasured Lands. I've personally got to enjoy his amazing book in person, and I can tell you it's absolutely one of the best photo books on the market. This limited edition version of his book is valued at $245. Thank you, QT. And of course, I would be remiss if I did not give a special shout out to some of the amazing people that have made this award possible. These are our patrons over on Patreon that are contributing at the $20 a month level and higher, and you too can have your name read. I also really encourage listeners to support these individuals however you can. If you recognize their name, go check them out. For example, we have Gary Randall. He does amazing photo workshops in the Pacific Northwest. Definitely check him out. You have Matthias. Uh, he is actually going to be hosting some workshops up in Norway soon. You have Danny Lefrancois. She does incredible one-on-one -on -one workshops up in Banff in Canada. And lots, lots of other people. We have David Kingham from NPN. We have Anton Everine, who creates the amazing luminosity masking panel called Arc Panel. We also have Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, who if, you, if you've never been to his gallery in Estes Park, Colorado, you should check it out. It's incredible. You have Chris Rice. Jeff Peterson, who does amazing wildlife photography. Charlotte Gibb, who does absolutely incredible landscape photography from Yosemite and beyond. We have Laurie Berenson, William Nurse, Ken Dono, James Bakavoy, Richard Wong, Zachary Smith, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, and my man Michael Rung. All right, well, let's talk about who I'm excited to have coming up on the podcast. Aaron Nace the founder of Flern, Brenda Petrella, photographer from Vermont, and Franca Gabler. Uh, she's a photographer obsessed, in a good way, with Yosemite. Uh, on the podcast, she shares her views on how she takes photos that are personal to her vision in such a popular place. And we also have my, my friend and patron of the podcast, Dan Hawk, who will be joining us from the Pacific Northwest. All right. Well, thanks for stopping in collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.